Father, we thank you so much for this great time of the year where we just focus, a focus effort around the world of your great love for us and the sending of your Son. And Jesus, thank you so much for being willing to come to humble yourself, to become a man, and then go to the cross for us. Lord, we're so grateful. We pray, Lord, even this morning that we'd have just some fresh insight into this truth that would impact our lives and make us more like you, Jesus, because we've been here. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, there was this man, this guy. Now, this guy actually has a brother. And they actually were really notorious in the small town in Texas. In fact, they grew up, these two boys grew up in this town, and, and they caused all kinds of trouble. But even when they became men, no one in the town liked them because of all of the deceit and crimes and difficulty they caused. And even though there's a lot of good Christian folks in this town, little town in Texas, they secretly kind of wished these two guys ill will. Well, sure enough, one of them dies, and the surviving brother now has the responsibility of making funeral arrangements for his dead brother. The problem was you can find any pastor in a small town that'd be willing to do the service. Not because they didn't have compassion, but because of the unusual requests this brother was asking the pastor to do. He was asking the pastor to, he said, during the funeral, I want you to say of my brother that he was a saint. Well, no pastor was willing to do that. No pastor was willing to do such a dishonest and ridiculous thing, so no one would do it. And finally, the living brother offered $5,000 for any pastor who would do the service and would say of his brother, he was a saint. Well, finally, one pastor agreed to do it. And this pastor was well-respected from a prestigious church. And everyone was beginning to wonder why he agreed to do such a thing. And so when it came time for the funeral, I mean, the whole town showed up, crowded in the church. They were in the foyer. They were in the parking lot. In fact, they had cameras that were televising this funeral to the entire county because everybody was wondering what this pastor is going to say. And they were actually all not interested so much in the person who's died. They were interested about whether or not this pastor would really compromise himself to that degree that he'd say of this evil man that he was a saint. Well, sure enough, it came time for the service, and everybody is waiting with bated breath about how this is going to play out. The pastor walks up to the pulpit, and he's confident. He looks out upon the throngs of people, and as he did, everybody grew quiet, waiting for what he's going to say. And he began to speak. The pastor said, we all know that Charlie here was a wicked man. He paused for a few moments, and everybody kept listening. He said, no, he was worse than wicked. He was foul and twisted and full of the devil. But compared to his brother, <laughs> he was a saint. <laughs> well, a lot of sermons, uh, messages that I've done have begun with that phrase, there was this guy. Well, this morning on Palm Sunday, this whole sermon is going to be a kind of there was this guy message. Now, Palm Sunday starts the most important week of the year for Christians. It's the beginning of Holy Week. It begins, of course, with the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem. It ends with the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. And there was this guy who just happened to be passing by that week in Jerusalem 
and he was compelled to become part of the story. The guy I'm talking about is Simon of Cyrene. And many of you may know him as the man who carried the cross. Now, what do we know about him? What we do know about him is this. On Good Friday, Jesus was carrying his cross to be crucified. And because of the condition he was in at that point, he stumbled under the weight of it. And then what happened next? Let's read about it. Mark chapter 15, verse 21 says, And they pressed into service a passerby. A passerby coming from the country, Simon of Cyrene, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to bear his cross. Well, Luke 23, verse 26 tells us this. And when they led him away, they laid hold of one Simon of Cyrene coming in from the country and placed on him the cross to carry behind Jesus. There's one more verse I think will inform us in this story. And that's Romans chapter 16, verse 13. It says this. It's Apostle Paul writing to the church in Rome. It says, greet Rufus. Remember, Rufus, the son of Simon of Cyrene. Greet Rufus, a choice man in the Lord, also his mother, who would be Simon of Cyrene's wife, also his mother and mine. Now, based on these verses, there is quite a story here to be told. So let's just think a moment about what we know from these verses about him. And what I want to do this morning is I want to piece together what we know about him, and then I want to tell you the story, a likely story of what happened to him. So let's, first of all, determine what we know about him. First thing we know is that he was from Cyrene. Cyrene is located in northern Africa, just on the map left of Egypt or west of Egypt. And we know from a background study that there was a Jewish community and a community of Jewish converts, converts to Judaism, converts to the worship of the one true God, the God of Israel, living there in Cyrene at that time. So there's God worshipers living there. Now, the Jewish people would, would have been there because of the dispersion of the Jewish people, and they would have traveled there and settled there. But also, there was converts. There was Africans who converted to faith in the one true Yahweh God. And so that's the first thing that we knew, that Simon likely grew up in an African family that had converted to Judaism. All right, the second thing that we know is that he was on a spiritual pilgrimage. The likely reason that he was in Jerusalem at that time was because he had made a pilgrimage, as many others probably joined him from Cyrene, to be at the Passover feast at that time. A third thing we would know is that we know from the passages that he stayed in the country. He came in from the country on the day of Passover. What we do know is that that was a common occurrence because Jerusalem was packed with pilgrims. There was not enough places to stay. And many people that made the pilgrimage would stay in villages outside of the city and wait for the actual day of the feast to come in. And that is probably what Simon did as well. Also, it says he was passing by. 
What we know about that is what that tells us is this, is that he was not following the events of Jesus. He probably knew nothing about this apparent criminal who is now crumbled underneath the weight of that cross. He was there on a pilgrimage. He was there for the feast of Passover. And so we know that when he came into the town, he had places to go, things to do. And he was just passing by and got caught up in it. A fifth thing we know is that he was pressed into service. He did not volunteer for this job. He was pressed into it. He's ordered by a Roman soldier. So again, we know his plans were interrupted. The day that he had anticipated, probably for months, maybe years, has now been drastically altered. He was pressed into service. A sixth thing we know about him is that he had to bear Jesus' cross. So the cross being was too heavy for Jesus to carry at the condition he was in at that point of all of the torture he'd been through. He crumbles under it. The Roman soldiers were not interested in this thing taking all day. So he looked around, a soldier looked around for the first big, strong man in the crowd he could see. And it was Simon of Cyrene, and he ordered him to pick up that cross. A seventh thing that we know from those few passages, few verses we read, is that Simon was the father of Alexander and Rufus. Now, what you need to know is that the Gospel of Mark was written to the church in Rome. That was the audience that it first went to. That was who Mark wrote it to, Roman Christians. Now, in order for Mark to better, better identify Simon to his readers, when he says Simon of Serene, he puts in, you know, the father of Alexander and Rufus. Why would he say that? Because they would have known his sons because his sons had become leaders in the church in Rome. So the time of the writing of the gospel of Mark, Alexander and Rufus were grown up and they were leaders in the church. In fact, in Romans 16, 13, Paul says, greet Rufus, one of Simon's sons, greet Rufus, a choice man in the Lord. I mean, this is the Apostle Paul talking here. So Rufus was a man, a spiritual man, a spiritual leader. And then he also says, and also his mother and mine. Now, Simon was apparently dead at this time, or he would have said something to Simon. His wife was a woman the Apostle Paul considered to be his spiritual mother. And Simon's son, Rufus, he calls a choice man in the Lord, very likely one of the leaders in the church. What about Alexander? Well, church tradition passes on that Alexander was already martyred for his faith at the time of the writing of the book of Romans. So we know how Simon starts out. He starts out in Africa. And we know how things end up you know, this drastic thing that happens, something happens so dramatic in Simon's life that he goes back to tell his wife and kids, they get converted. And this, his, the impact on Simon's life goes all the way to the church in Rome and all the way to the Apostle Paul. So my question is, what changed him? What changed Simon so dramatically that his life changed, went on to change so many others? What I like to do is I like to tell you the story, how it probably played out. 
Now, some of this where I'm, I'm kind of just piecing together information to tell this story, but I'm telling a story that likely happened here. I want to start off by, let's go all the way back to Africa where the story begins, all the way back to Cyrene, just west of Egypt. We know his given name was Simon. He likely grew up in a family that was already converted to Judaism as a result of some of the Jews that were scattered and settled there. He was likely taught the Old Testament as he grew up. And that desire to one day travel to Jerusalem, you know, had to be building as he read the stories. He read about the feast. He had a dream that one day he would go there to the glorious city and see it all himself. But it was going to cost a lot of money, and the older he got, the more he thought that's probably going to just stay a dream. It's way too expensive for me to be gone so long and such a long journey. But as he got older, he apparently marries a God-fearing woman. And she began to urge him, I think, to pursue his dream. I think the conversation might have likely gone something like this. It would cost too much for me and the boys to go, but you go. You go and you see it all and you come back and tell us and we can't wait to hear the stories. So Simon goes and apparently we'll know from another passage I'll refer to later, the message that he probably traveled with a group from Cyrene, a group of pilgrims, of God worshipers, God seekers that dreamed one day of going to Jerusalem for the feast. So the day comes, they finally got the money, the group's ready to go and they head out on the long journey to Jerusalem. And I think the closer they got, the more excited they got. I think their step got lighter, and I think they began to sing songs. You know what songs? The song from Psalm 120 to Psalm 134, they're called the songs of ascent. Ascent is to go up. And no matter where you came from, you always went up to Jerusalem. And they're singing the songs, and they're getting excited, and they're moving closer and closer. Now, I suspect they met other pilgrims along the way that joined them, and as they joined with them, they got more excited about all going to the great and glorious city. And the closer they got, the more pilgrims they met, and word began to travel to them that there's no room in Jerusalem. It's already packed. You're going to have to find a place to stay in one of the villages around Jerusalem. And so in the countryside, Simon and others begin to find lodging, those who will take them in and put them up. And that's where they stay until the day of the feast. And I want you to imagine that day. The day's finally arrived. The day he dreamed about his whole life is there. And he wakes up excited. It's the day to go in for the feast. The day to finally lay eyes on the glorious city for the first time. So he wakes up with excitement. He can hardly contain himself. And he puts on his new clothes. Clothes his wife made for that day. Brand new garments. He's ready to go. He's all cleaned up, and he's on his way to the glorious great city. And when he first lays eyes on the city, he just loses his breath in awe. Oh, what a glorious city, sitting on a hill, shining with the glory of God. His step got even lighter. His songs became an even, even more robust as he goes through the gates of the city. And then it happened. I mean, he hardly gets into the city when he hears the chanting of the crowd, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. And he's thinking, what is this? This is not why I came to the city. What is going on? He goes into the streets and the streets are crowded and congested and people are shouting. 
Some are weeping, Jesus, Jesus. Some hated him. Some seem to love him. And he's thinking, what is this? I didn't come for this. And I'm trying to pass by, but he can't pass by. He's caught up in the crowd. He's caught up in the commotion. He's caught up into a road that would later be called the Via Della Rosa road, the way of the cross. And all this time, is, he finally lays eyes on that man. He lays eyes on him for the first time. He sees him beaten and bloodied and weak and weary. Some are cursing him. Some are spitting on him. Some are weeping and loving him. And as he makes his way through the crowd to see who is this man that the whole city's up in arms about, I suspect that they met eyes at one point early on. Then suddenly, surprisingly, he is grabbed by a Roman soldier and says, you, pick up that cross. And I suspect in his mind, he was hesitating, thinking, no, not me. I have nothing to do with this. I, I'm not even, I'm not here for this. I'm just trying to pass by. But the soldier jerks him, says, pick up that cross. And he becomes part of the procession. Procession, I want you to imagine what it must have been like to become part of it. So I want to take you to just a, a, just a glimpse of what that would have been like, what he would have seen, what he would have heard. Before I tell you the rest of the story, so let's watch this clip of what it would have been like for Simon.
Simon and Cyrene is compelled to become part of that procession. He is compelled to pick up the cross of Christ and then to follow Jesus up that hill, the hill on the way to Golgotha. So again, I want you to think about, there he was in his new clothes. This is a day he's waited for his whole life. There in his new clothes, all cleaned up, and he's ordered to pick up this bloody cross. So there in his new clothes, he picks up the bloody cross, puts it over his shoulders, and now he becomes part of this procession that he still knows nothing about. He carries that cross up toward a hill called Golgotha. He kept watching this man. I want you to imagine he's behind Jesus, we're told, in the Gospel of Luke, walking behind him. He walks and he watches him. And I think he sees something he's never seen in any man. This man, in all his misery and pain, stops and consoles weeping women along the way. This man, when he's spit upon and he's cursed, does not retaliate. He's thinking, this man's not like any criminal I've ever seen. And in contrast to Jesus, he watches these Jewish religious leaders who were behaving quite differently. These leaders whom he respected from afar, even envied, he sees them act so unmercifully and unlovingly, so callous and uncaring, so mean-spirited. When he gets to the top of the hill, he's instructed to unload the crossbeam. 
When Simon unloads the cross beam, the soldiers throw Jesus down on it. They stretch out his arms. They drive nails into his hands. They stretch his legs out. They drive spikes into his feet. And then they host the cross up and drop it into a hole. And then they crop it into the hole. And Simon, I believe, just stood there. I mean, what else is he going to do? He stands there in this blood. He stands there wondering, who is this guy and what is happening here? I believe he would have stood there long enough to hear Jesus' first words on the cross. When Jesus said, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they're doing. And how he had to wonder, first of all, he's thinking, I've never heard anybody call God Father. And he's praying for the forgiveness of the very ones who are killing him. I've never seen this before. And I believe he would have began to reflect on the study of scriptures, what he was taught. He was taught that forgiveness is only possible through the shedding of blood. There must be a sacrifice. An unblemished lamb must die. And he wondered about what he was hearing and what he's seeing. He's trying to piece together what's happening here. Others gathered around the cross. Some of the religious leaders began to shout, if you're the Christ, save yourself. He had to wonder about that statement. Did this man claim to be the Christ? Did he claim to be the Messiah? Has this man claimed to be the ones the prophets talked about, the one that God the Father in the book of Genesis promised a deliverer would come one day that would save us from our sins? Is this the one? Did he claim to be that? And then he began to think of all the passages in the Old Testament that prophesied about the Messiah. He thinks back in what Isaiah the prophet said, that his appearance would be marred more than any man. And he's looking at him on the cross thinking, I've never seen worse than this. And then he continues to think through that passage in Isaiah where it says he would be pierced through for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities, and there he sees him hanging, pierced through. He had to begin to wonder. And he began to think of more verses, I think, came back to mind. By his scourging, we are healed. And the whole way up that hill following Jesus, he saw his lacerated back. Then he would have remembered also what Isaiah said. The Lord would cause the iniquity of us all to fall on him. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth like a lamb that was led to slaughter. And he's thinking, I just saw that. Then he would have remembered more. His grave, Isaiah said, was assigned with wicked men. And there he hung on a cross between two thieves. The assignment was to be buried with those thieves. By the way, thinking of those who were crucified with Christ, I don't know how many of you know this, that from the Bible we know that one of them was the Apostle Paul's father. Paul said that his old man was crucified with Christ. That's a joke, okay? I'm throwing that in there because you guys are following me real good, but I'll make sure you're alert. Back to the story. So as he gazes up, one of the thieves turns and speaks to Jesus and says, says, you know, this man's done nothing wrong. And he's thinking, is it true he's done nothing wrong? Then Jesus says to him, truly today you shall be with me in paradise. Can this guy grant access to paradise? He can if he's the Messiah. 
he's the Messiah, then he's done nothing wrong. And if he's the Messiah, he can grant access to paradise. So again, I think Simon's trying to piece things together here. And what he's hearing, what he's seeing, I don't see him leaving for three hours. Where is he going to go? Standing there all bloodied, bruised. So I think he's continuing to piece things together. And three hours into this thing, we have then from noon to 3 p.m., darkness covers the earth. And he's thinking, what is happening now? What's going on? Could this darkness be leaked to the crucifixion of this man? So he stays at the cross wondering what will happen next. After three hours of sheer darkness and silence, the silence is broken by Jesus screaming out in agony, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's never heard a more painful scream. And all of his life, a desperate scream of desertion. And he's thinking, if he were Messiah, why would God desert him? And now he's piecing together. But Isaiah the prophet also said that God is holy and man is sinful. And God must separate himself from sinful man and must turn his face away from sin. And he thought, is that what's happening right now? Is God the Father turning his face away as the sin of the world comes upon Messiah? Then he's thinking that would explain the darkness, the natural world reflecting what's taking place in the spiritual. The darkness of sin, misery, and death is now being laid upon the Christ. And the Father has to turn away as he pays a penalty for sin, separation from God. Then, then Simon hears Jesus say, it is finished. He would have been familiar with that phrase. Words that were stamped on merchants' bills in the first century that just basically said the word, one word translated, paid in full. Paid in full. Somehow this Jesus saw his mission was accomplished through his dying. What mission is accomplished through dying? Simon is beginning to piece it together. The mission of Messiah is accomplished by dying, dying for our sins. Then he hears Jesus say his last words, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit, and he dies. And then even more strange things begin to happen. Because when he breathes his last breath, an earthquake happens. Can you imagine he's trying to get his ground, you know, hold his balance? What is happening here? And when the earthquake happens, rocks break open and dead believers come out of the grave and start talking to people. And I imagine Simon had to hear some of that. What is happening? Who is this guy? And then word came to them that right at that moment, the veil of the temple has separated the holy of holies from the holy place, has separated sinful mankind to a holy God, had been ripped open from top to bottom. And what does that mean? It's as if the death of Jesus has released, released life to the dead. It opened up access to God. And he's thinking, this is no criminal. And just about the time he's ready to say, no, this is, the Roman centurion beats him to it and says, truly, this was the Son of God. And then he's thinking, I've seen enough. I've heard enough. This Jesus, 
must be the Christ, the Son of God. And he started to walk away, and he's pondering all that he'd seen and all they'd heard. And the Roman soldier grabs him and says, no, you don't leave yet. I need you to help take this body off the cross and carry it to the tomb. So he's carrying a body, and they're carrying the other bodies. They're all three going to be buried in the same place. And then another man shows up. His name is Joseph of Arimathea. He has written permission to take the body of Jesus to a different tomb, his own tomb. And then Simon must be thinking, wait, that's the rest of the verse in Isaiah. It was prophesied his grave was assigned with wicked men, yet he was with a rich man in his death. Everything's fitting. This Jesus must be the Messiah. So Simon leaves that place tired, weary, blood-stained clothes. You know he had to be pondering all these kinds of things. What does all this mean? And I think it's very likely thought, I got, I got lots of questions I need answered. Before I go home and my wife and my boys, and I can tell them and all the other people and, that are part of the believing community there, tell them all the story. I got, get, I got to get some more answers. So I suspect he began to say, find some of his followers and ask lots of questions. And as he asked the questions, he probably learned from his followers, yes, he was, this Jesus was born of a virgin. And he performed miracles, he healed the sick, he cast out demons, he fed the multitudes. And this Jesus never sinned. In fact, he preached of a kingdom that you can enter by believing in him as the king. But he also spoke, he would have learned this from his followers, he also spoke of dying and rising on the third day. And about that time, Simon's thinking, well, it's, it's the third day. And so he says, I, I need to go talk to some people, find out what's happening on the third day. And he finds some of the followers, and they're saying, they're yelling out, he's alive, he's risen. They're speaking about how he appeared to them and showed himself. They saw him. And as he's gathering with some of the followers trying to learn more, he was in a group of about 500. I just got to believe Simon was in this group of 500 that Jesus appears to and shows himself that he rose from the dead. Well, I think he probably hung around a lot longer to find out more and more about this Jesus and all he had said and all he had done. As many would have done when they traveled such a long way, they would have come for the Feast of Passover. They would have stayed 50 more days for the Feast of Pentecost. They would have done a two for one. I mean, because these are, these are two of the high feast. Penta means 50, 50 days after Passover. They would have stuck around. Simon surely wanted to stick around find out what's going to happen next. Now, on the day of Pentecost, he was there thinking, now what's going to happen? I know what happened on Passover. What's going to happen on Pentecost? Now he's at Pentecost, and there's a group of believers in a prayer meeting, 120 of them. The prayer meeting spills out into the courtyard, into the public arena. And I just picture Simon being there because they began to speak in other languages. And if you read Acts chapter 2, one of the languages that they spoke in glorifying God was a language from Cyrene. And I think now Simon's like, oh, wow. Then Peter gets up to preach. And I got to believe Simon's in the crowd still at this point. And Peter's preaching the gospel to thousands now. He's preaching about the life and death and resurrection of Christ. And many are starting to ask the question now, Peter, what must we do? And I think Simon's saying, yes, what must I do? He told them, repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ, 
And you too will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And 3,000 were baptized that day. And I believe in that line of 3,000 getting baptized, there was one Simon of Cyrene. Simon is filled with the Holy Spirit. And I think now he can't wait to get home and tell the story. The story to his wife and kids and anyone who will listen to this story. Well, Simon does go home. And we do know quite a bit of the rest of the story because his family is greatly impacted. And the impact goes beyond his family. Is that The impact of Simon goes all the way to the church in Rome. And all the way to impacting the life of the Apostle Paul. What a great story. So my question is, what about your story? Now, perhaps you're here today in this room or you're watching online, and, and you might be where Simon was in the beginning of the story. You had been just happy if that whole procession of Jesus and all that would have just passed you by because you got things to do, places to go. But today you're feeling compelled to get involved in this story. Compelled to learn more about this Jesus, this amazing one. Or perhaps you're already a follower of Jesus. My question is, what will you do next? Because think back to the time where you, you were also would have been glad for that procession to pass you by. You were on living your own life. But something compelled you to be part of the story. And you began to follow this Jesus who was crucified and rose again. And so... My question to you is, what will you do next? Well, we know what Simon did next. He went and told the story to anyone who would listen. And the ripples of the impact of his life went all the way to the shores of Rome. So my challenge for you on this holy week leading up to Good Friday and Easter Sunday is... Who will you tell the story to? My challenge is tell the story to anyone who will listen. In fact, this Easter Sunday, a lot of people that you normally go to class with or work with or play with, recreate, or live near, if you invite them to church on Easter, a lot of them would say, sure, if you'll take them or meet them and sit with them, make it easier for them. And then they can hear the story, the greatest story ever told. And as you do that, as you tell your story, and tell this story, the ripples of your life will go far beyond what you've ever imagined. Simon had no idea of his, how the impact of his life would affect so many. The same is true of all of us. So my question is, what will you do next? My challenge is, tell the story. Just tell the story. Tell your story. And tell the story. And see what God will do with it. Let's stand for prayer. Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you so much for this great and awesome truth of what, how much you love us in the sending of your Son. And Jesus, we just are so, so grateful that you are willing to come and do what you've done for us. And Lord, we pray that you would empower us all to be those who will invite this week, who will tell the story, who won't be quiet about the, most, the greatest thing that's ever happened, but let people know. And then trust you by your Holy Spirit to compel people to become part of that story. Lord, we just thank you. And we pray, Lord, that this week, I just believe there's going to be more people in earshot of the gospel at one time than ever before in history. And we're asking you to pull the nets in. Lord, just pull in the nets. Catch a mighty catch for, the, for Jesus' sake, for your glory and honor. 
We pray this in Jesus' name. Everybody says, Amen. Amen. God bless you. Have a great week. I'll see you next week.